0: Folks, it's Nick Jeeves coming at you from New York City, host of What Would Jeeves Do? And never forget, oh, what a friend you have in me. Today, oh, today was a day. A day, as Will Ferrell, as James Lipton would say, a day not unlike many others, and yet totally different. I can't really put it into words. In media, it's up and down. There's a lot of differences in the days. You're going to have some days where you don't do a lot of articles and it's slow. And you're going to have other days like today where impeachment hell and school shootings and other things seem to dominate the press. And on top of that, something I won't get into, but you know, there was some pushback. There was some tension with some people that I had to speak with and It was very stressful, but this guest for episode three really lifted that burden for me, and I don't even think he knows how much he did, and that's Tucker Carlson. He's a primetime host, king of cable, Tucker Carlson tonight, founder of The Daily Caller, where I started my journalism career as an intern, and it was a real class move of him to come on the show, and I... He means so much to me. You know, a lot of people, I think, misunderstand him and they paint him with a certain brush because he's blunt and because he laughs very boisterously and like it's – you have to acquire sometimes a taste for that. I always love that attitude. So I was drawn to him immediately and and all these negative things people say about him, that's partisanship. That's not true. Just like I'm sure if you met one of his counterparts on MSNBC – You'd have something to say about their humanity, and I have something to say about his. He is a good father, a good man, wise, very wise, and he doesn't look it, but he's 50, so he's really racked up some wisdom that he shared with us in this podcast And we had to shoot it guerrilla style, unfortunately. I was on the run. He was on the run. We'd missed each other a couple times. So forgive if there's any scratchy audio, forgive it. It was very Emmy-winning stuff in the field podcasting. So there may be some moments where we talk over each other. Sadly, I don't know if it's going to survive in editing, but for the first few minutes, like the minute or two, I didn't turn on the speaker phone app when I was recording it on my phone. And if it's not in there, I want to hit this part of the story because I think we'll have to edit it out if his voice doesn't come through. But first time I met Tucker Carlson, I'm interning at the Daily Caller and I'm sitting at the elevator bank waiting for the elevator. And he kind of you know sidles up next to me, Seinfeld style, like quietly. Just did not see him, came out of nowhere. So boom, I look up like, oh shit, it's Tucker Carlson. I was pretty outgoing, even being younger four or five years ago. Like, I loved that stuff. I lived to see somebody like that and ask them, you know, what's going on? I don't know who initiated. I'm pretty sure it was him. I, I didn't say anything yet. And all of a sudden, boom, he pulls out a piece of nicotine gum. And he looks at me, jazzed up as ever. And he goes, nicotine gum? So I laughed and I just said, I don't smoke. And his face got super serious and he just said, Since when the hell do you have to smoke a cigarette to chew a piece of nicotine gum with me? And I was like, that's a great point. And I took the gum out of his hand, and he kind of nods to himself, like very pleased that he convinced me. And I just popped it into my breast pocket for later. I don't know if I ever chewed that piece, to be honest. I don't think I could tell you one way or the other if I chewed it. But if we're going by folklore, I chewed the hell out of it, got one hell of a head buzz, and rode the elevator all the way down with him. So I I think he said something to the effect after that, which I didn't cover in the podcast, but just like – I'm going to do Fox and Friends. You riding down the elevator? You're coming with. And I was like, yeah, hell yeah, man. I'll ride down with you. So we go way back. Tucker did so much for me. And I think I'm going to cover that on the back end of this when I come back to give my take on the interview at the end. But for now, all you need to know is that that man has empathy. He's got soul. He is wise beyond his years. Even though he's starting to get up there, he's not super old yet. And We talk about that but he he really changed a lot of things in his life and he did them the way i see it having known him personally for his family everything he did almost everything he did was driven by a desire to improve the quality of life for his family when you run into someone like that it's hard not to like them it's hard to stay mad at them for any reason because you're looking at them and you're going wow Say what you want about whatever he's doing and how he's doing it. The proceeds, the good, all of that is being directed at his children, at his family. And I can speak for him. He's a generous individual. He won't admit it, but I think he's uh, more spiritual in in a good way. He definitely believes in God, but he kind of, oh, you know, I'm not that great of a Christian. I don't think that's true. He's treated me uh, like a good Samaritan would, like a Christian would. And other people swear by him. And I missed him every single day that he wasn't there. He left. He got promoted. And I remember saying, and I say it in the interview, I was like, this guy's, I like this guy. I knew about him before. Now I'm in the circle with him. I'm betting my chips on him. I'm going to follow this guy. And we both got lucky. He got promoted and his profile raised our profile and our raised profiles were fair game to be hired and to be you know, rising tide kind of lifted all of us. And then you'd hear a month would go by, he gets promoted again. Uh, Six months go by, another promotion. Six months go by, and a year, another bump. And people loved it. Because he cut out the bullshit, he was honest, he had no fear of talking about God. Commentators and politicians may make you think that that is old school. That that way of thinking, that way of being blunt, that way of being real, that's 1950s garbage You gotta church up everything you say, you gotta whitewash it, no pun intended, you know, you you gotta make it so that everybody is happy with it and you're not offending anybody. And but then where goes where does the humor go? Where does the truth go? And he understood the value of that. Of letting everything fall to the ground, curtains up, and let the chips fall where they may. There's value in that. And there's further value in what he discussed, and what we discussed was a real topic, mortality. We got a lot out of it, a lot of jokes, a lot of fun laid-back stuff to start, but when I asked him, hit me with the real, tell me a story, he went right for a near-death experience, his brush with death, and what it meant to him. I had no idea. I had no expectations. I didn't know that this is what he was going to do. I just asked him. I told his assistant, "This is the this is the format. Have him ready with a story. We can wrap it in, you know, right on time if he wants to do it in the moment, but just have something ready to go. And he didn't even need to think about it. It was just boom. He's like, oh, that's easy. This moment. And what he said was, and what I think is the highlight of the show here, this episode, is that it is only through suffering that we can truly grow. And it is in those moments of pain and desolation that we find out not just who we are, But while we wander in the dark, that's where we find the light. And by light, I mean the light within us. The peace of God that exists resides within us, within our souls. He made a good point, and he's right, and I've said it before too. You have everything handed to you? I went to school at Fairfield University. Just think about that for a minute. One of the richest counties in the country, which by default must make it one of the richest counties in the world. I can't speak to that. With numbers, but I can say that when I was walking around those streets, you know, I can't total a Mercedes and be fine and be like, oh, this is no big deal. I can write a check for that. I met kids, and they, listen, I'm nothing against wealthy people. Like, there are great people that have wealth that are amazing. You'd never know it. They carry themselves so well and they earned it. But when you have it, my point is, when you have everything handed to you on a silver platter, your grit, your realness, your experience, it suffers. You don't taste desperate. You don't know what it means to tighten your belt. You don't know what it means to take it on faith that somehow, some way, you are going to survive and you are going to keep your head above water just long enough to catch just enough breath to make it to shore. And let me assure you that when you do, life changes. The world changes. Your relationship with people changes. What you put value in and what you think is important changes. Suddenly, things that once seemed impossible become easy. As if it's the flick of a wrist and you've changed your life. You've changed the world. Suffering connects us. It taps us in with one another. And again, something we covered in the episode, we're all in this together. You know, this We all face the same fate. Mortality is something that none of us escapes. Only one guy I heard about doing that, and we also mentioned him in the podcast, the big guy. But him aside, the one Nazarene being the exception, we're all headed for the same place. The ground. Now is it scary? Hell yeah. The thought that your lights go out and that's it there's no nothing after this it it hurts your head it makes your heart heavy it makes your stomach twist but the idea that there is meaning in this life and that maybe there is something waiting for you on the other end and that it puts it puts that that idea that this is a test in perspective and it's that growth it really is i mean it's it's It comes down to this, and I'll end the intro with this, and then you'll get to hear from Tucker. What are you living for? If you're living for today, don't listen to this podcast. Go on, click off, go to Google, go to Disney Plus. Do that instead. Don't even bother to delve any deeper. But if you truly are living for not just tomorrow or the next day or the rest of your life, but the next level, then give it a listen. There was truth in what he said, and it was undeniable. And he's not the only one saying it. So let's perk up our ears, open our hearts, and take a listen to my friend, my mentor, and someone who truly did made, made such a huge difference in my life, Tucker Carlson. Let's take a listen. Give me a little taste before we jump into your story, your profound life moment that you're going to share with us. Uh, but. Does it, does it get robotic what you do? Does it ever feel like you get up from the, t- the chair and you're like, I don't even know what I just read off the prompter or is it spicy every night?
1: You don't want to ever say things that you don't believe or use words that aren't essentially yours. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, one of the smartest writers anywhere, Blake Neff, also by the way, from the Daily Caller oh, who work works it. on the show and who's a, a massive addition <laughs> and a really, and a really smart person and, Um, someone I talk through ideas with all day long and that, and in a lot of ways, that's his, his biggest contribution, I think. Um, but you know, in the end, especially in the long read, it's, you know, they have to be your words and they are basically my words. So, um, so there's that. And then, you know, you're just engaged. It's live. So there's no spacing out, you know, you don't want to say anything dumb that it gets you fired. So I'm, I'm pretty engaged in the show as it happens. I mean, there, there are definitely downsides. One is that you can never escape the feeling that, you know, you've got another show to do <laughs> and the pressure of it. You know, it's a never-ending thing, and you don't really want to take vacations. I don't take a ton of vacations. Um, but then I think this is all finite. I mean, I'm not going to be doing this forever, and... So I, I should enjoy it, and I and I do mostly enjoy it, almost always.
0: Why media? Why did that? I know you started the Daily Caller, and you kind of were in TV back in the day with Crossfire, and you know you were into it for a while now. But do you ever think why? Did you just roll into it, end up in it, or do you do you contemplate why?
1: Why? Well, because it's because I you know I got married before I had a college degree, so I didn't really have a choice. I mean, media is. You know, one of the only businesses that will accept you without a degree, and where, you know, the standards, the entry standards are pretty low. Mm-hmm. That you know, I was looking for that, and um and my father had done it. My dad worked at ABC, That's right, and and newspapers and magazines, but he was a television guy when I was growing up, and so I had been. Well, I mean, I'd grown up around it, and visiting him in the studio, and I had a sense of what it meant to do a daily TV show, and. So it's just it wasn't as weird for me just because that's what, you know, everyone in my family did. My you know, I had other relatives who are in the media too. So anyway, um that's why I fell into it. I've never done anything else. I started in August of nineteen ninety one and and I'm still doing it basically. I got into T V in nineteen ninety five. So that was that was a while ago. And uh and it's treated me well.
0: So I got two more for you before we jump into your main uh, wisdom here. Um, Do you ever feel a heavy burden being in that chair? You're in prime time. Do
1: I feel a heavy burden? Yeah, every day.
0: How do you deal with that?
1: I mean, it's not that I don't want to overstate it. It's not like I'm I'm not a surgeon or something. I mean, (laughs) if I make a mistake, the worst that happens is I get fired. It's not like lives hang in the balance or anything. I mean, I, I try not to in my own mind, overstate my importance or the significance of what I do. I mean, it's and it's easy, by the way, to do that because TV, you know, especially live TV is, is inherently intense. So you can wind up feeling like, oh, this is so important. And, you know, every studio I've ever worked in, for, you know, for moving on 25 years now, you always hear at least one smart person say, it's just TV you know or we used to say when I was at Zena it's just table
0: good advice and it's
1: just it's important to remind I mean look I I mean I think it's important I I really put a lot of care into the show I put a lot of thought into what I say into the topics we address I don't take it lightly Mm -hmm. but I also don't want to become you know I don't want to lose perspective and become pompous or silly or you know overinflated like Dan Rather, you know, this sort of pompous old fool who's convinced that like reading a script is the same as landing on the moon. I mean, it's like people lack self-awareness and they, they forget that in the end we're all going to die naked and alone.
0: Yes, you know what I mean? Yes, like I do.
1: all of us. It doesn't matter from, you know, the, the derelict you know pissing himself on the, on the sidewalk to the queen of england like we're all in the end going to wind up in the same place which is dead yes. and so you know if once you start there i really try to keep that in mind every day just because it puts things in perspective you know much needed perspective so I'm, I'm not sure I'm really answering your question. No, yeah, there's a well, lot of well, pressure, just, but it's not that much pressure. You're it's, not, it's God, not
0: that so big a deal. You're doing, you're doing fine. But my, my dad used to say, uh, "We're all in this together, and none of us are making it out alive." So it's totally true. It is right. It's and, completely true.
1: And we lose perspective in this business, especially. Well, yeah. I mean, you really think you're going to care about your job in your final moments? But, you know, maybe.
0: Yeah. But I suspect not.
1: you I suspect not. said, you know, I've got four children and a wife mm-hmm. and a lot of really close friends and relatives who I love and see a lot. I just had lunch with my dad today, as I do every Thursday. And oh, nice. I don't know, I have a lot of relationships and uh, you know, the the few times in my life where I've thought, you know, maybe this is it because you know, everyone has those occasionally, um, I didn't think at all about my job. I thought about my children and, and my wife. So maybe that's a sign that I mean, it's all very obvious, but that you should spend time worrying about the things that matter, and maybe spend a little less time worrying about Russia collusion in Ukraine.
0: Yeah. Hey, listen, it's not so obvious as you can see. Do you do you ever miss not being famous? I mean, I cherish the ability to go in my pajamas and pick up a gallon of milk when we're running dry. You can't do that, I would think, without getting barbed or you know asked for autographs, whatever. Do you ever uh, miss your anonymity?
1: I mean, I don't really want to answer that question because I don't want to seem I don't want to whine, you know. I'm I'm from a, a very Protestant tradition where you know complaining is considered like the most unattractive thing you could do. In a word, you know, yes. I, I don't. I will, I'll say this without specific reference to myself. You often hear people say they want to be rich and famous. In fact, that's it's almost universally desired. Yes, from what I can tell. And at fifty, I can tell you my perspective, which is it, you know, having enough money not to worry about money is something worth striving toward, I think, mm-hmm. not being in debt, Yes. you know, uh, uh, throwing off the shackles of the credit card companies that really don't get the credit they deserve for destroying people's lives. <laughs> yeah. You know, we spend a lot of time about how Putin's evil. Putin's nowhere near as evil as American Express. Mm-hmm. You know, American credit card companies are part of the problem and and I think should be reined in by force. That's how I feel about it. So, you know, getting rich enough that you don't have to worry about your creditors is 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 worth striving toward in my view but being famous is something i i don't understand why that's considered uh you know a, a laudable goal like i don't know why you'd want that i don't know why you'd want people you've never met to think about you you know i don't know why you'd crave the adulation of strangers like I honestly think it's bizarre.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what attracts people to you. By the way, speaking of that, looking good for 50, man. I wrote you up today in an article and you still got it. So at least that's some, you know,
1: (laughs) something. I don't think so. I'm feeling my age. You got the hair, bro.
0: <laughs> Listen, once the hair goes, those primetime deals are done. You're, you're gone, man.
1: That's yeah, it. well, that's probably, I mean, it's a wig, so <laughs> as long as I keep getting that, you know, lifelike human hair from India, I'm good from to go. From the
0: nicotine gum, man. That's why your hair's fine, <laughs> I guess I'm sure. Enough. I actually quit the nicotine gum. Uh, you oh. did. Mazel tov on that, man. I remember you were in the office Jones, in a little bit, but I, I, I had to salute you for the – for. Oh,
1: it's horrible, time. and now I have – just doing my best to lose the weight that I gained, which is like, it's insane. You quit. I was in nicotine for 36 years. I actually counted. So from, from the spring of 1983, when I was in eighth grade, when I started smoking to, or started smoking heavily, um, until the spring of 2016. So that's, I think that's 36 years. Yeah. Or or rather 2019, whatever the freaking year is. Anyway, it's a long time. It's like a whole lifetime. Yeah. And the second I quit using nicotine, boy, I, did, I mean, oh my gosh, that was one of the biggest changes in my whole life, actually.
0: You smoked longer than I've been alive.
1: Oh yeah, no, I, yeah. and I smoked heavily too, and I'm sure I'll pay, you know, as you said, no one gets out of this alive. I mean, I'm, I'll definitely pay the price for that at some point, and you know, whatever. Nothing I can do about it now. But, uh, I did get off the nicotine and, and it, it definitely stopped my metabolism in its tracks. Like I, I became Almost narcoleptic. <laughs> the first of, I literally would fall asleep in you know at inopportune moments every single day
0: for the first couple of months. Hey, I would have baked a cake if I'd known it was your anniversary, but I guess you don't want to be you know, putting on the pounds, so we'll uh, we'll save it. Yeah,
1: it is. And today's our. Thir- How'd
0: you know that? Oh, I just sensed it. See, I have you. You give off an aura, man. I don't know if you know. <laughs> like, you know yeah,
1: we've had um, the show's been up for three years today. Weirdly.
0: Congratulations.
1: And I wasn't even aware of that, but I got um my producer Justin Wells, who is a legitimate genius. Um he's one of those people who was born to do the job that he's doing. That's cool. Which is really usually the way it is with people who are a success at whatever they do, it's like they're they're just designed from birth to do this job. Anyway, he remembered and got got food for everybody, but I didn't
0: remember. Hey, listen, I'm glad you're on the air, man. I remember being like, I'm going to put my chips on this guy back in like 2015. You were coming back. You were Fox and Friends in it. Speaking of falling asleep, you were doing the morning shift.
1: took me. took me a while. Yeah, well, I got canned fairly spectacularly in 2009, I guess. Um, So, yeah, 2008 or nine from MSNBC.
0: I remember that Tucker. That was what it was called, right? Just-
1: <laughs> I think at one point they snuck an exclamation point in at the end of my name.
0: That's how you know it's the real deal.
1: <laughs> so let's, let's
0: get some life wisdom out of you, man. What's, share with me a story, a decision you made. It can be work. You don't have to talk about media if you don't want to. What's a moment where you had to drill down and, like we said before, kind of you know recognize what matters and, and, and make maybe a hard choice or a,
1: a – Oh, well, that's, that's easy. I mean the only time you ever learn – is through failure, pain and suffering. Amen. I mean that, that's it. There's no, success teaches you nothing. It, you don't grow at all when you, you know, realize your dreams or reach your goals or, you know, ascend the mountain or whatever dumb cliche you want to use to describe it. But winning doesn't teach you anything. Nothing. I mean, it's great to win. I'm not against winning, but it's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't improve your soul. In fact, often it rots your soul. Um, you're, you're, you're more in danger as a person when you succeed than you are when you fail. And the reason is really simple because failure forces you to stop and assess and real failure, like actual, you know, failure that imperils, you know, your relationships or the way you live or, you know, in my case, I, I got fired. I had to sell my house, you know, and I had four kids and, you know, I just ran out of money because I didn't have a job. Um, and and you know, that can reverberate and that can cause all kinds of crises in your life. You know, people's marriages fall apart, they lose their kids and they become alcoholics, you know, like all chain reactions can begin that end in you know, a really sad place. So I felt a lot was at stake and it forced me to think through why this had happened. How did I get here? And just as it always is, you know, part of it was chance, but part of it, a great deal of it, was my fault. And I had made a bunch of mistakes and I had, you know, done a bunch of foolish things and got myself into this, into this position. And so I was forced to brood about that and decide, you know, how to improve. And I, and I did, I think. So, 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 but, but that's, that's always the way it is. And, and, and if there's one thing that I've learned that I didn't expect to learn and, and therefore it's an especially resonant thing, Um, in my head anyway, is that success is really a trap. It's it's absolutely the scariest thing you're ever going to do is get what you want because that's almost 100% of the time what destroys you. You know, people who are working toward a goal and fighting against odds to achieve the goal tend to be psychologically the healthiest. Yes. because they're, they're they're focused and i know that in your life i mean i know you know exactly what i'm talking about you know even if it's a daunting goal even if you know it's a life or death struggle there's a, a clarity that comes with fighting for something that tends to put everything in perspective and it tends to bring out the best in people not always mm-hmm. but in general it does what brings out the worst in people by far every single time is getting what they want, is winning, and you just – you see it, especially as you approach middle age and then, you know, you want at Bryan, which is firmly in middle age. Mm-hmm. You see people, you know, achieve their goals, and then you notice that they often fall apart, like very often fall apart, and they start doing things that are just wrong. It's interesting.
0: And there's a freedom. There's a freedom in letting go and saying, what's the worst that can happen? Like, you're going to fire me? My life's on the line.
1: Well, exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's
0: fun, right? People feel that and they're like, wow, someone who's genuine and who they can't seem to touch. Like, the system can't touch those people because they have something, I think, that's a little stronger than just the bottom line.
1: Well, of course they do. Of course they do. I mean, you know, people who – I mean, for me – And I haven't had very much adversity or sadness in my life. I've had a remarkably blessed life, I would say. I have had a couple of, as, you know, everybody does things that were difficult, but, um, particularly in my childhood. But as I got older, I've actually had a great life and a great family and, you know, been very lucky in my jobs and all the rest. But one of the pivotal experiences for me was being in a, in an accident on an airplane where, I, you know, I, I was fairly certain that, you know, I was going to die, and then I didn't. Then 2001, in Pakistan, I was on a plane that crashed, and obviously I survived. But that was the first time in my life where I realized that suffering was the key to growth. So I came back from that. um, That was October 18th, 2001. You remember so I, I have the... Well, yeah, I do. Well, actually, I'm cheating a little bit because I was looking now. Am I right? Yeah, I have the ticket stub from the flight framed in my office (laughs) behind my desk, just as a reminder, you know. But anyway, the point is, I got back from this, and because of the the nature of airplane accidents or this one, like I knew for about 15 minutes that the plane was going to crash. So I I really had time, you know, to think a lot and to think, wow, I can't believe I'm going to die now. You know, it was just a very. It was a profound experience for me. Yes. Anyway, I got back, and I had this amazing, almost like rejuvenation. Like, I, I changed my life completely. A, a year, not even a year after, within nine months of getting home from that event, I had gotten sober and had a fourth child. Nice. And I got home, and we conceived that fourth child, like, almost immediately. And we had no plans of having a fourth. And, and I think it's actually, I've learned since that that's a pretty conventional response. Like, you know, you come through some traumatic event that you don't expect to come through and you have this overwhelming desire to create new life. I mean, I think it's actually a very understandable response, but, yes. but the point is I lo- that happening to me improved my life maybe more than any other single event. It really changed the trajectory of my life for the better. And I thought my life was good. I mean, I was hosting a daily TV show when that happened. I mean, I was even, you know, I was a young man, but I was, I was successful. I was making a fair amount of money. And, but actually there was a lot that was wrong with my life and I, and I didn't even really know it. I was a, you know, I had a drinking problem for one thing, which <laughs> I had not acknowledged. Um, but I think I knew about on some level, but anyway, but the point is it's, it's in the sad things. It's in the failure. It's in the unexpected tragedies that all the good things happen and I know that that's a cliche and I know that probably like most things I say there's a kind of banality to it but it's also a 100% true it's it's actually true and so it makes you think like we spend all of our time you know hoping and praying that things are all going to go great but I don't know if we're wise you know we accept the tragedy knowing that this is – these are the moments when God makes good on his promises and speaks to us and that we become better people. Like we maybe embrace tragedy a little more than we do when we understand that.
0: At that point, do you think we, as a society, turned our back on God? It seems like it's taboo.
1: Are you kidding? And and I mean <laughs> of course, yeah. I mean yes. My God. And, and, and I don't want to pose as some sort of – exemplary christian i'm no, certainly not i've always
0: I'm, been outspoken about it and you've never been afraid to invoke jesus or god and and say what you believe and that's not yeah but
1: believe. i mean i'm a, i'm literally an episcopalian i mean that's like barely christian it i mean that's counts. it's a disgusting uh, denomination when, that i've been stuck with since
0: it goes down it counts
1: <laughs> yeah but look i i don't in other words I, I i definitely don't want to hold myself out as a role model in any way, but particularly as a Christian, because I'm, I'm certainly not a role model, but I think that the root of all wisdom is acknowledging how flawed you are and how little power you have over anything. You know, powerlessness, the acknowledgement of powerlessness is the beginning of, of, of wisdom, and I think, I, I'm convinced of it. I mean, it's true, and the opposite is also true, that hubris is a guarantee of foolishness. So. I mean, so, like, why do our leaders on both sides, like, hate religious people above all, hate the idea of God above all? Why do they worship abortion as a sacrament? Mm-hmm. It's not that they actually like abortion, but symbolically abortion is totally key, and so, by the way, is war, and so is the death penalty. Anytime you take life, what you're really saying is, I'm God. Yes. And if you put constraints on the taking of life, what you're saying is, you're acknowledging I'm not God. I don't have the power to decide who lives and who dies. Humility. That's that's the same as acknowledging there's a power higher than me, and that's the one thing that people in charge don't want to acknowledge. And so they're like, no, the, the freedom of choice is, you know, the right to kill someone is the essential freedom. And of course, there's something, there's, there's no freedom in, in killing somebody, especially a child. I mean, it's, it's awful in every way. It compounds whatever problem you think you're solving, and it and it's it's the world. It's cruel and immoral, and it's you know it's, it's everything you think it is. it's 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 monstrous, but they cling to it, including a lot of really
0: good people. I'm not yeah, you know there are a lot of pro-choice people, pro-abortion people
1: who are really good people, obviously, but you so you sort of wonder like, well, how could good people support something so obviously horrible? And the answer is because not because they love abortion, they don't. um the answer is because. They can't concede that there's a force more powerful than they are. It, and, yeah,
0: exactly. exactly. And they can't have that. Can't have the people thinking for themselves. God forbid. Right.
1: No well, on. that's for sure.
0: Well, I know you're a busy man, so I'll give you one more and then we'll let you close with some more wisdom. But um, so in like five, ten years, are you going to be one of those old fogies that's going to die in the chair? You know, to well, to Well, well? well in
1: if- – in five years, I'll be fifty-five. So <laughs> I hope right, I'm not right. dying in the chair. Though, if I keep gaining weight, That's what I'm I, saying. I, I you might. Got, you
0: got the cigarettes, you got the weight. I don't know. I'm just saying. You know, you don't want to be a Dan Rather in like ten. No, no, 10
1: no you don't. And I don't have any desire to, you know, live to be eighty. Anyway, I don't.
0: Yeah, screw that.
1: I'm married to uh, an extremely healthy, fit. Person who's going to live until she's 100. So I know that my grandchildren will have, you know, the best grandmother ever. They don't need me around. So I, I actually have zero interest in like living to some advanced age. I just, I want to live to a fine, kind of appropriate age and, and then, you know, drown in a trout stream. Um, <laughs> that, that's my hope. Well, no, I'm serious. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so, but no, television, I mean, I really enjoy it, but I don't. I mean, I love my job, and I'm really grateful to have it. And, you know, I've done it for a, a long time, and I've liked it more every year. I think it's really interesting. It's absorbing. I, I am really engaged um, intellectually in it, and I'm grateful for that. It's nothing is rote. You know, everything is a struggle in a good way. Um, but I don't think that I need I, – I certainly don't need it. the affirmation. And mm-hmm. I guess everyone claims that, but you know, ask anyone who knows me in real life and they'll confirm it. That's I, what I love about it. I,
0: you yeah, watch. I have
1: zero interest. I'm not just saying that, I, I, and I'm not pretending.
0: That's real. You know, I
1: have a lot of faults and a lot of weaknesses, but this it just it happens to not, to not be one of them. I do not need to be recognized in airports. I, I really don't I know, I
0: could see <laughs> <that>. ever again. <laughs> yeah, I could feel it on you. I could see every time I'd be out a couple times or in the office, and you would kind of you'd always roll with it when they were cool. You've handled it yeah the or way. whatever.
1: I mean, you don't really know what to what to say. You know,
0: you're in the line of fire, so I've always respected that about you, and, and I want to say. Before we close, and uh, I want you to know, you did, you did a lot for me. Like I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I got sick and I interned for you. And that was a moment for me too because I thought it was my fault. I was getting sick. I was having trouble. Nobody really believed me. And I was interning with you. And I remember that you not only got back to me and gave me your cell phone number, but you helped me get hired at The Caller. That job helped me get hired at Fox. And it changed my life, man. You have no idea what you and that business and you caring about me did for me. And, uh, well, I don't thank know where I'd be you. without Thanks. you. So I, I can't say enough good things about you, Tucker. I really appreciate I, it. Uh,
1: that's really kind and I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. And I mean, we, are, we are the winners in that deal. So thank you for, for working there.
0: Uh, don't butter me up now. You're not on TV. All right. You don't go on till eight <laughs> o'clock. So save your bullshit. I got to start, start writing, man. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, man, again. And, uh, God bless you and all the work you do. And we'll be following you. You can be sure of that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. You're the best. I appreciate it, Nick. You're the man, dude. I'll talk to you soon, Tucker. Thank you. See you, All, yeah. Right. Yeah. All right, we're back. We're back. Powerful stuff. I laid it out in the intro, and I think he delivered. There's a couple things I want to unpack from that episode that I think we should address. Number one, I found it surprising that Tucker faced such adversity that he was financially strapped had to sell his house. I knew that going into this, but I'd forgotten until he brought it up again. Talk about betting the farm and having your back up against the wall. Whoa. I bet you a lot of people write him off as this rich kid who always had money and has always been a millionaire and who had it handed to him. Not so. Look at that. Learning something new every day. And then, Let's just go with the sense of humor. The guy laughs for the shit he's been through. And he did say he hasn't been through a ton of adversity in his life. But I didn't want to bring it up with him in in person. But the man's home was besieged by lunatics. Antifa types looking to terrorize his wife and kids. The guy's got stress. And we talked about that burden. Sitting in that chair. Suddenly the mic on your ear becomes heavy and your shoulders sag and you suddenly realize that, whoa, I'm communicating with millions of people right now and millions more are going to watch this later. What I say matters. And yet the guy, damn near, always has a smile on his face, laughed way more than me in the podcast and I like to think I'm pretty good about not just actually laughing but throwing like pity laughs in there for people. That guy blows me out of the water always on. You know, even when he's not expected to be, or even when, you know, he has the room to just be himself, I think he realizes that his presence and his attitude and his energy matters to people. And he really does put the effort in to be a friend, to be a father, to be a mentor. And I, like I said, in the beginning, I had never thought he was going to talk about death. I mean, crazy. And... The reason that he had mentioned a couple things about me, and, and I had talked about it, I think myself, I would hinted at it, but I've had a lot of health struggles. A lot of health struggles. I'm surprised I'm alive, let alone walking upright. I think as we go on this journey together on the show, I'll share more and more, bit by bit. Good amount of it's already out there, I'm not going to hide it, you know, when you write and you're a reporter- you know there's blogs there's stuff like that out there that details a little bit of what I've been through but he was there it wasn't my first round of battles but it was certainly I think the biggest and the hardest maybe the hardest and the man it was so above board i mean you would you wouldn't believe it he gave me his cell phone number i mean uh, to an intern that's that's caring That's empathy of another kind. And not only that, he would always give me advice. When I texted him, he texted me back. It was never none of this two weeks later bullshit. Oh, hey, I'm sorry. I forgot. Uh, What was your question? Never. Always responded. And even if it was only one word, he made it count. It was the one word that was like excellent or love it or tremendous. And I was lucky enough to get more than just that from him. I would get paragraphs back at times or I would get you know, one or two thoughts because I would ask him a question and he would answer it. This guy who's got four million people, three or four million people watching him, making millions of dollars, people are looking at him to lead not just a political type revolution but to be the media, to be the fourth estate, and yet he found the time to get back to me. That's real. I asked him to give me the the truest moment that he'd ever experienced, and he hit me with the Pakistan plane story. That was real. He talked about his kids. He, he talked about the love he had for his wife. He talked about God. All real. So, so for those of you that may have heard this different narrative, that he's some phony, or he's some rich kid, or he's some mediaite. Scumbag. It's all fake. It's all false. It's all drudged up out of jealousy, hatred, competition. (laughs) Because if you didn't already know it, the media is a dirty business. People succeed usually by mixing lies with truth. Uh, The person that preaches the most pure truth, they succeed. Lightning in a bottle. Sometimes they do pull out in front and people hear it and it resonates. But in my experience, the most successful people in this game are the people that are able to weave the lies into the truth. They drag you in with what's true, and then they lie to you. For whatever reason. For their own gain. For the rush they get. And you'll you'll also note, by the way, that Tucker said, and he was honest about it, I believed him. He's like, I don't like that strangers know who I am. And, you know, most most people... Don't like him when they come up to him and say something like the people that like him usually respect, I would think, respect the privacy, respect him. But it's the outspoken people, the ones that acknowledge, hey, I know you. More often than not, it feels like it's, ne- it's more negative for people that are putting themselves out there. I admire that. It takes balls to stand up every night on the biggest cable network one of the biggest shows in cable, and try to be real. Also, extra shout out to Blake Neff. He is the teleprompter writer for Tucker. Tucker obviously said he works with him, puts his own words into the prompter, but Blake had a very rare gift for being able to capture what it is that you know Tucker would want to say or how he would say something and kind of give him that starting point. And the man had a lot of passion, from what I remember. We only interacted a couple times, but very, very passionate man, uh, Blake Neff. But back to getting back to Tucker, he didn't have to do the things he did for me. And in his philanthropic life, he didn't have to do those things for other people either. He's helped a lot of people. I hold a lot of people dear in my life, especially from Washington, because I spent three years there, three very formative years there, and I have. A lot of those people, and um, hopefully we'll have the rest of them on the podcast, but Matt Lewis, my first guest, Daily Caller alumni. Alex Stredway was one of the executive officers of the company. Very close with Tucker. Very close with me. Alex Pappas, a current reporter at Fox News. Alex Pappas was, loved Tucker, and Tucker loved Pappas. And Alex Pappas got me Ben Carson's phone number when I got sick. And we're going to have Ben on. I reached out to Ben and said, remember me? We talked four years ago. I think we're going to have him on. All because Tucker decided one day that he wanted to start a website. Had I not had that website to get out of bed every morning, I may not have found any direction in my career. And I was sick and didn't know it. So grad school seemed out of reach. I felt like it was my fault. I was low on energy. I was in pain all the time. So only having a bachelor's media like Tucker covered, it's easier. They don't expect PhDs and theses theses and all these other things. You can make your way if you're good at it. And I am. And I was. But I learned from the best. And I loved the Daily Caller. It's changed in recent years, obviously, when your leader leaves and all new people come in, they're going to bring their own style to it and their own flair. And uh, they they took care of me too, the the post, uh, you know, kind of Tucker era leaders for the most part. But nothing ever matched his energy, his drive, the direction he wanted to go. And he knew where we were going. He knew where we were headed, kind of told us, relax, I got it. You know, you screw up. I got your back. We're here for the truth. We're here to seek truth. And have a few laughs. He made it fun. You know how many people in media today take this so seriously? And he touched upon that. Dan Rather. He looked like he was dead. He looked like he was, an, an, like, he was either the undertaker or the body in the coffin. And yet he projected this arrogance that really, as Tucker said, like, like reading a teleprompter was like landing on the moon. And I also would always question. I would meet people in media. And I would look at them, and I would try to size them up. And there'd be times that I would see them do fiction shows like House of Cards. Rachel Maddow is in House of Cards. I think there are certain CNN hosts that are in House of Cards. It might be John King. I don't want to say for certain, but there were a few hosts that I saw peddling fictional television shows as themselves. And it led me to say to myself— if they can come in for money and read the prompter as if it's real for this fake show, how can we ever tell that they're not just doing that every day in reality? Just reading words. And I asked Tucker that. And I expected him to say, yes, sometimes it gets robotic. I just read the prompter. I'm I'm a I'm an I'm an umpire, I'm a referee. No. He said, no, I try to get my voice in there and yes, it can become repetitious, but I strive for to be real. Meanwhile, not all, but some of his competition is willing to go and whore themselves out on fiction shows or Skyfall. Has anybody noticed in James Bond that half the CNN team has like red fake teleprompters for the sake of a James Bond movie? What happened to the Gotham News Network? We couldn't go with the fake GNN. We had to get Wolf Blitzer in there and like further drag down what it means to be a journalist. I don't see Tucker in any fake movies or TV shows. So he's got that going for him, which is nice. But it's time for me to wrap up here soon. So I want to say this about, about Tucker and what he told us in this podcast. Don't always assume. And I'll I'll take my own advice and not assume that, you know, those CNN hosts or Rachel Maddow had any ill intent or everybody has a right to be recognized as human, to have their humanity respected. And that's what this podcast is about. I'm, I got Joe Scarborough to agree to come on. Morning Joe. I wrote a th- 500 to 1,000 articles about this guy. Every morning I had to wake up and watch Morning Joe for The Daily Caller. And not all the time were they friendly headlines. Sometimes they were because he was just speaking truth. Other times we had, we called him out or we pointed out, you know, conflicting stuff. Didn't matter. The guy was nice to me. He was cordial. We were cordial to each other. We shared information. He gave me quotes. I wrote him up when he told the truth, you know, in a positive way. And he's coming on and he's going to share with us a story about his life. We want to break the walls down. The more we, we push this narrative that everyone has a camp, everyone has a color, everyone has a team, we are going to rip ourselves apart. And you can fight over who's going to be king and queen of the ashes, but I have no interest in that. And I hope you don't either, the people listening. When you really think about it, are we that different? Do we all not fret about the rent in one way or another? Do we all not get nervous on a first date with someone we like? Do we all not have a God-given right to peace and happiness and, God forbid, justice? Maybe we disagree about how to get there, but respecting the journey, respecting the destination, feeling the pain, because we all feel it, feeling the pain of others. If we can unlock that, we can really create something special here. I think we can rise above what we have accepted as the status quo. And I can't, I can't thank Tucker enough for him reaching out to me and and showing me how to do that. And I hope that his lesson, and our efforts here on this show, can help whoever's out there listening to do the same. I'm not very good at leaps of faith, but when they work, they work. And it seems like Tucker's drink drank the Kool-Aid and taken the plunge. And this is my way of doing it. So I hope. We can inspire you to join us in this mission and understand that we are all brothers and sisters just trying to make our way. That does it for episode three. Please come back. Tune in for episode four. We're not completely—this is the end of the package of our initial three episodes, so please follow us on Twitter or Instagram. And uh, we have a lot of good people on the list in the queue. We're going to bring out Ed Henry from Fox News, White House correspondent, TV host. We're going to bring in Scarborough, like I said. We just nailed down Ben Carson. We're hoping to bring in Dr. Alveda King, niece of Martin Luther King. People that know what it's like to live and who know what it's like to just want to bring a little peace, a little order, and a little bit of love into the world. So we're going to get all the notes from them. We're going to share them with you. And then it's up to you. Have a great week, everybody. Enjoy. And we'll be back very soon.